Sarah Things, you all keeping well? No? Yeah, that sounds good. Good to see you all. Uh, you're all very welcome to the 42.e rugby show here at the back page. Uh, not that off the ball thing as somebody asked downstairs. Uh, but this was not entirely dissimilar. We'll have a chat anyway. Delighted to be joined by Murray Kinsel of the 42.e and former Ireland head coach Eddie O'Sullivan as well. Everything's lads? All good. All good. Thank you. Um, I suppose the country's only really talking about one thing, and I know you put it on record one time with myself, Eddie, that you are a huge fan of Ed Sheeran. Did you manage to get down to Parky Cueve over the weekend and see the great man in action? No, uh, I haven't got to Parky Cueve. <laughs> I wasn't the person that fell off the building either. <laughs> and we wish that person well, of we course. We wish that person well. Yeah. I thought it was scary that somebody take that risk to see Ed Sheeran. Well, yeah, I, su yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it is quite a quite He's a good, cross. but... You, you, know. you, you said to me before, he is undoubtedly a talented guy. Yeah, he kicks with both feet, so. He's <laughs> 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 the pedals, he's a stupid. It's true, no, yeah. he's, he's, he's versatile, he's versatile. Mario, are you a fan? Not really my cup of tea. Uh, my main concern today really was just getting over here. I lo got lost for about 45 minutes, so stressful label. Where are you coming from? I was coming from uh, city centre, it wasn't even that far <laughs> away. Oh. <laughs> Embarrassingly enough. Which side of the river was it? Uh, I was coming from south side of the river. Uh, once, once I didn't want to say that. I was trying to avoid saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, need my, I need my handheld. You're the Google Maps child. <laughs> Crossed the river and got culture shock is what yeah, happened. Yeah. Which is, well, strange, which is strange when you consider you're from Waterford of all places. <laughs> but there you go. Well, we'll talk a bit, a bit of rugby, I suppose. That's. Uh, <laughs> Are we finished this year? Yeah, we'll get rid of the banter early. You know what I mean? So we can settle into the chat. He's the guy with the red hair, isn't he? Ed, yeah, that's him. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, the mix them up anybody else. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, well, I suppose, like, Eddie, you've had strong opinions on this in the past, and I wonder, have they changed in any way? But much of the talk this week, which is actually kind of strange because it's leading into a Champions Cup final, is the future of Joey Carberry and as to whether he should move north, south, mm -hmm. or stay put. Um, what are your thoughts on it at this juncture? Haven't changed, really. I, I said last November, you know, because he played so well uh, against Fiji, Everyone's saying, oh, he's thrown the, the second best out half in Ireland after Jonathan Sexton. And, um, and I said, well, if that's the case, he can't stay in Leinster. Uh, so there was a bit of uproar over that, which you don't understand because Leinster people see him as a Leinster player and he's so important to Leinster, he plays at fullback. And look, it's, it's pretty simple as far as I can tell. Um, it depends on what he wants to do. And it's very simple after that. Does he want to play for Leinster? If that's what he wants to do, he should stay in Leinster. If he wants to play for Ireland, staying in Leinster is a problem, and Joe Schmidt has told him that, pretty much, that he can't sit behind Johnny Sexton and be the number two Irish or half. So he has to leave. And people are talking about Ulster. I forget about the Ulster thing. That doesn't matter. If the question is, are you going to stay, you're going to go. I think if he wants to stay and play in Leinster, he should stay in Leinster and play in Leinster. But that will restrict his ambitions with the Irish team, I think. And the coach has pretty much laid that out to him. And we said this, he needs to play week in, week out. And not, you know kind of playing the odd 4-14 game at 10, which he doesn't often do, you know, with mm. Ross Byrne there. He needs to play in the big games, the Heineken games, so the real pressure's on. Uh, so, like, that's it. Now, if he wants to do that, that's fine, but if he wants to play for Ireland, he has to get out of Leinster to do that. Now, where does he go? That's another discussion. Does he go west, north, south? Uh, certainly doesn't go east. Right, that's out of the country. He stays in the country. So, that's where it's at, really. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's rocket science. The guy... And I understand why Leinster don't want to lose him. He's a fantastic player. But I understand why he probably doesn't want to move because he's in a very good environment. He's mm. playing with all his friends. They're enjoying themselves. 
the, the, the buzz in Leinster must be off the charts. They're winning most of their games every week. He's part of winning culture. And wherever he goes, with all due respect to Ulster, Connacht, or Munster, it's not going to be the same. They're all aspirations to go there. So for him, yeah, that's, a, that's the tough part. But if he wants to put 50 or 70 calves behind his name for Ireland and pop, you know, lines tour maybe down the track, he's very young. He's got to take a risk and he's got to move out of Leinster. He's not going to get that exposure behind Jonathan Sexton. Yeah, like I guess from his point of view, he's still 22, um, and at that stage, Johnny Sexton was nowhere near being as advanced as he is with his international career. He's happy in Dublin, he's got his girlfriend here, he's got his family around him, uh, he loves playing for Leinster. So, uh, like personally, if I was him, I, I wouldn't be in a major rush to get out. He is playing for Ireland, he's clearly the second choice out half, no matter what happens. But so that might change, you see, if, in fairness to George Smith. Who, who do you think Joe would pick <coughs> ahead of him? He, well, he may have to make a decision about that. I mean, he made a decision when he, when, um, he and Bannigan left. That he, he was out of the loop. Yeah. You know, Simon Zebo's gone out of the loop since he said he was going to France. And he may have to make a decision that look, if I need a strategy for the next World Cup minimum, and Carrie might not be able to fill that strategy if he's not playing every week. Mm-hmm. And that is that's the kernel of it. Yeah, and that's the pressure, I guess. Like that that's tough for Joey Carby to handle. I guess a big point in this is, is yeah, also winning. That, it's not that tough either, let's be honest. We're not sending Dogger <laughs> Mongolia. You know, it's a hundred yeah. miles from Dublin, whichever direction he goes and he's where he's gonna be. He's got a girlfriend in Dublin. Listen, people come 12,000 miles across the world to get a job playing rugby. Yeah. So moving 100 miles up the road isn't the end of the world. Like, yeah. I know it's, you know, and I do have to cross the Liffey sometimes as well. What? That's right. Yeah. I just think that's overplayed. Like, he's not, he's not leaving the country. He's never going to see his parents again. Yeah. You know, we're crying at the airport. It's not going to happen. He's a, he, we have motorways and everything. It's, it's a different environment. It's a different environment. Yeah. It's not the same as Lionel's Lancer. And I get that. That's important. Yeah. That's not an easy thing to do. He's For really sure, yeah. enjoying himself. He's in a very good space with all those guys. But this is about him wanting to be at the next level up consistently. And at some point here, Jonathan Sexton retires. Is he the next man up? If he makes that case by going off and playing somewhere else, he is the next man up. Yeah. Yeah, and he could do pretty well out of it as well. I think he's the in a good. Are high he's on this. Yeah. I think they are high. He's also in a good bargaining position. I think he can, if he's going to go, he's going to do well out of it, even if it is for a year. Mm. He can demand a bit, a bit more with his wages, with his salary. That comes into it as well, maybe sweetening the deal a little bit. So. And I think yeah. what you just mentioned there is he should go for a year and then assess it. Yeah. Give himself a year, and he might like where he is. It might might be great. It might work out very well for him. What's is that, that like from the Ulster point of view? Though? Yeah, What's is that the, just to the detriment then? Where do you go? Do you go to yeah. Ulster now? Do you go to Connacht? Do you go to Munster? That, I, and I think the call, the thing gets conflated when you start talking about the province you should go to before you decide whether he goes or not. First decision, are you staying or are you going? Hmm. Decide you're going to go. Where do I go? Well, he expressed his desire not to go, but since then, Joe Schmidt has come and meet him in a, in a cafe, and someone snapped a photo of it, and hmm. everyone's seen that, and, and he's given him the, the opportunity again and said, listen, this is still a really good opportunity. And he's probably going to keep saying that to him until he gets the right answer. He needs to see the writing on the wall. Yeah. Which is, if you don't go, it's going to be hard to pick you for Ireland. Yeah, I, I think and that's and the that's message. And that's the risk he takes. That's well, and, and, and that's his call. I don't think Emma's going to put him on a bus anywhere to go say you're gone. But he, if he doesn't go, there has to be ramifications for that. Yeah. You know, because the coach, and you have to respect the coach's position there. His job is about Ireland. He's got to get the best for Ireland. And, you know, he believes Joy Carby is the next out half. Not maybe just no behind Sexton, but he might see him as the next out half after Sexton. He's succession planning. Yeah. Stuart Lancaster said during the week that you have to do what's best for the player and not the parties involved. But, mm. like, when you 
say Eddie when you were saying well he could decide I just want to play for Leinster and stay at Leinster but is there not an argument to be made that even if he was to move for a year or two years at some point he could return to Leinster and just be a better overall player that there's, this is an absolute 100%. no-brainer because he'll be playing and, and that's 10. why I say do a one-year deal and, and assess it then I, I mean I, I understand why Lancaster said what he did but he's looking through blue glasses yeah of course yeah. you know like that's the Leinster view on things he wants him there but what's best for Joey Carberry is it playing for Leinster? No, I think playing for Ireland in the Lions is better for Joey Carberry. And playing for Leinster mightn't get him there. That's the problem. Is he, like, we've seen him play 10 intermittently, and he hasn't lit the world on fire, but albeit you could put that down to the fact that he hasn't played there consistently. Is there, uh, like, uh, any doubts as to the fact that he can actually become a legitimate, kind of elite level 10? Like, are, are we putting a square peg into a circular hole here by any chance? I, I don't think there's major doubt. When Joe Schmidt's a pretty good judge of player, and he clearly sees him as the, the second best already. So I, I think he has all the skills. He's, he can yeah. kick, he can defend. He can, he, he, can. Can, he has he got can. a lot of vision, his yeah. passing game is good, but he needs the games. But he hasn't yet. He point. can, but he hasn't yet. Coming yeah. off the bench for Ireland with 10 minutes to go and things are going pretty well is not a benchmark for you know being an out no test player. Like He has to go and he has to try his trade at a very high level, put himself under pressure, and then he gets a start in a Six Nations game or he gets a start in an autumn international against a Tier 1 nation, and then we see. Now, there's no doubt Smith thinks he's on his way. He's definitely got the material, but that's a big difference between potential and actuality, you know? Potential energy, kinetic energy, two different things. You, you mentioned him a second ago, Ian Madigan, and uh, without trying to sort of put a dampener on his career, because he's undoubtedly an unbelievable player. I know you're very fond yeah, of his ability as a player. Yeah, yeah. But is there an argument to be made then that maybe he is kind of a cautionary tale in this regard, that for too long he waited behind Sexton and never quite became a sort of the, the international 10, albeit it obviously there are selection issues there as well with Schmidt and a decision made. But maybe he might have actually... Like he possibly had a higher ceiling if he had broken into a, one of the provinces starting 10 consistently at a younger age. Yeah, I think mean, there probably are other exa- examples of that. A guy not taking an opportunity to move away and get game time. Probably not on this scale. A guy like Cahill Marsh, for example, who's just been released. He had a chance to go to, to Connacht, I think, a year, a year or two ago and probably play a lot of games. He decided to stay in Leinster where he was happy, uh, didn't get a lot of games at all and is now being released. So... There are other tales, certainly, where players have decided to stay. And it is the culture. Like you say, it's not a big deal, but clearly it is for guys who love playing for Leinster. Well, I'm not saying it's not a big deal. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's not as important as you think yeah. in terms of, like, if it stops you from... I'm assuming that Joy Carberry's ambitions are to play as many times as they can for Ireland and potentially play for the Lions. So one thing leads to another. So I know it's a big deal, but it's, it, him... Kind of say, I'm staying in Leinster, I'm going to roll the dice here. He is rolling the dice. There is a risk for him. You can't, you can't deny that. Yeah, I think we kind of have to wait in this one. Ulster played their Champions Cup qualifier 18th May, so after that, it makes it a lot easier decision if they're in the Champions Cup, certainly. So I think we have to wait on, until we get that confirmation. Fair enough. Uh, I, I predict he'd probably go. Yeah. Oh, well, the, well, the, the conversation continues then. Uh, <laughs> well, like I was going to ask, you th- so you think he's going to go... When all is said and done, he, go, he goes. I think he will, yeah. I think he will. He has to. If he wants to play for Ireland, he has to go. And while you said it didn't necessarily matter right now where he goes, no. surely in, if you're looking for sort of optimal return, the decision is obviously important as to where he goes. That's the next decision. What's the best fit for him? But he's got a decision to go. There's no point in deciding where he goes. He's not going anywhere. If he decides to go, where is the best place for him? Where's the best landing spot to your mind? Uh, the obvious landing spot at the moment is Ulster because they, they don't have an out half. Well, they have a young out half um, 
Johnny McPhillips. Mm. But he's very early in his, his career in terms of his development. So I think realistically for the next season, it'll be incredible pressure on McPhillips to carry the team at 10, whereas someone like Carberry could do that job very easily, I think. He's got the, he's got the ability. Mm. I have plenty of confidence in him as a player. And if he went for a year and see what it's like, or even two years, where's Sexton going to be in two years? Who knows? Maybe he might yeah. retire. Or maybe he, he wants to go. He says he wants to go to the World Cup. But yeah. that might be out of his control if he gets hurt. And then, you know, come back to Leinster. He's not going to be not be a Leinster player because he goes mm. somewhere else. You can always come back to Leinster sometimes, right? But I think the Ulster one is the obvious one. But then again, Munster, I think their Blendal's injury profile, you know, um, Keighley has not lit it up this year. It was his best chance mm. to do it. There's a window there for him as well. So I think that they're, they're the two places he can look at. But uh, certainly... If he stays in Leinster, he's taking a massive risk. Presumably, if, if Ulster don't have a head coach until January, and I, I know there's a likelihood that that gets sorted out, but if that was to be the case, does that almost rule Ulster out then because you are sending him up to a fairly unstable environment with only a, a, you know nine months left to work up? Could be a factor up? in the where he goes. Yeah, I might say it's more stable in Munster, I might go there. Yeah. Like Roger was on about that. Yeah, it, like it does make sense. They're look, it seems they're screaming out for ten. Blaindal is they're a bit uncertain. Blaindal's going to come back from a really bad injury profile. You know that it's it's doubtful that he could come back to where he was, and like that's a bugbear for Munster. But look, there that's the, the the detail of where you go, and I think either of those are, are definitely options. But uh, and you're right, if if if, Munster, if Ulster don't have a head coach in January, that's not very enticing. Mm. to go into an organisation as a head coach. I, I have to say, I do expect to see him up there next season. Ulster? I think, I think, I think he'll be up there. So yeah. checks written. He'll for, to go for a year long, yeah. Scotland are just playing hardball because Scotland know Ulster have to get him. Yeah. So Scotland are saying, no, you can't go and we get the check. As soon as I get the check, he can go. <laughs> you know, it's, this is all just semantics. It's, it, it seems unconscionable that Ulster will start the season without a head coach. They'll have to find a solution and usually a checkbook gets these things done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the Leinster team for the weekend, I mean, it, it's likely, obviously, that uh, Carberry will be on the bench. Uh, but a couple of interesting decisions supposedly have been made with regards to the starting 15. There was talk that James Lowe was going to get the nod and that maybe they wouldn't require the services of uh, Gibson Park. But now that Luke McGrath is, I suppose there's doubts as to whether he can go a full 80 minutes, meaning Gibson Park becomes important and therefore James Lowe drops out and all of yeah. a sudden Jordan Armour is yeah, supposedly yeah. starting on the wing for Leinster. Well, when it looked like uh, Luke McGrath was back and he is certainly going to start, I think, um, the obvious thing was James Lowe coming in, but I think now over the last day, certainly just today, it's emerged that Leinster still are going to do a fitness test with Luke McGrath. They're not quite sure about his ankle uh, lasting for 80 minutes in what is going to be a very physical game against Racing. You know, the weather conditions aren't said to be too great. Slippery pitch with a bit of rain. Um, and they're just worried that he's not going to get through the game or he could go down. You know, it's an ankle injury. These things are often uncertain. If he goes down after five minutes and Nick McCarthy comes on to play for 75, it's a huge ask, especially considering he did look a little bit shaky when he came on against Saracens in, in the quarterfinal. And Gibson Park was good against the, the Scarlets. So um, I think they're slightly erring on the side of caution if they go that way. Now, Luke McGrath may be fine when he does the test tomorrow, maybe 100%, and, and they go low in the end, but it's, a, it's still kind of up in the air. I think they still have to make that final call, and it definitely changes things. Obviously, like Larmer is a, a brilliant winger as well, so you're not missing out too much, but I think everyone wants to see Lowe uh, out on the wing making a big impact, and he, and he certainly improved defensively. We were worried about him in that regard, but he brings so much excitement as well. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll change things up, and Gibson Barks is obviously a good replacement there to have behind McGrath, but... I don't know, what do you think, Eddie? Would it, would it strengthen or weaken the metre way? I think the obvious, they want, they want McGrath on, on the, 
starter and they want uh, low on the wing. But I think they've got to be 100% sure about McGrath. And if they're not 100% sure, I think it's a huge risk to put him on the field if he doesn't, not going to last. Um, if he goes out after 15, 20 minutes and you've got a rookie coming in, that could be an expensive day out. Um, the other thing is, like, Gibson Park did really well the last day. Yeah. It's not, it's not a risk. It's a risk picking Luke McGrath. It's not a risk picking Gibson Park. So for me, I would pick Gibson Park because you know what you're getting. Like, if McGrath's great if he's fit. I mean, I think they're juggling chainsaws here with this notion of we'll wait and see. And, and the problem with that is, and I know this dealing with a player who's injured, and you want to, you want to give him every, every minute to get ready to play, but the fact that it, it consumes everybody all week. Is he, will he, won't he, can he possibly? And it, it just consumes everything about what will he play. And then that becomes the focal point. And it doesn't help preparation when you have a player who, like, unless this is just, they know he's going to play or he's not going to play and they're just doing this, just keeps us all busy. Mm. Some coaches do that. You know, it's, they have great fun with that. But <laughs> if this is genuine that Luke McGrath is, is a 50-50 call, I really think they shouldn't put him out there. They need to be 100% sure he's good to go. And that's a medical call. It's not a coaching call. And then put Gibson Park in there. If, if McGrath's 100%, put him in. Low on the wing, no problem. But I think unless you're sure, don't take that risk. Let's say McGrath goes on after 10 minutes. Rookie scrum half coming in. Big occasion, wet day. A lot of decisions to make. And it goes south. But if, they, but if they do make the call to say drop low, have Gibson Park at the bench, start with McGrath, at least you have the reassurance that if McGrath goes down after 10, you've got Gibson Park coming on and he did a job the last day. Like, would you start McGrath in that situation if he's, say, 75%? I've never been, I've never been in favour of starting players who aren't 100% fit. Right. Because for them as well, like, it's nothing worse for a player going into a game in the back of their head, they know I'm not 100% fit here. So they start to compromise their game. They start to make adaptions around it like when they if you have an ankle injury and you see a half gap and you go oh, I won't go there because you know my ankle whereas if he was fit he'd go for it and it's, it's a big part of McGrath's game he's breaking yeah. around the fringes yeah. that he, if he's got a dodgy ankle and it's in the back of his head he's, he's going to back out of that when you might need him to go for it so it's not even fair on the player and I'm not, I'm not just picking on him any mm. player like that it's like a player who's got a dodgy shoulder and he's 90% fit and he's got a line of player up on his right side. He says, oh, I'll line him up on my left. And he gets a knock on the head and he's out the gate. You know, but all those things factor into the player's psyche around the game. So I don't think it's fair to the player who's not 100% fit. And then there's a risk of not lasting more yeah. than 10, 15 minutes. So yeah. I, I just, it's ne I don't think it's ever a great idea. And the whole build-up then is consumed by will he, won't he, could he maybe. You know, everyone's watching the team run, is he okay? And it's, it's just... It's, it's not the best. Yeah, it's also just a shame that the non-European player thing has been such an issue every every round. Yeah, ideally, you want to have your big name foreign players all involved. Yep. And James Lowe is a guy who's on a good wa wage as well, uh, who should be involved in all these games, and he's had to, to sit out a couple. It's been a bad planning error, would you say, by Leinster, that that came to that? Or, or is it better off to have these guys in your squad, have the ability to, to change things? But can they just afford to operate without him? Have they just shown that? Like, was it almost yeah, like yeah. a luxury signing? Where it's like he's I not always felt he was a luxury signing because, and people didn't like this at the time, I just said, like, Leinster signing a winger. You know, it's like bringing Coles to Newcastle. They had buckets of wingers. And they signed, oh, he's a, I'm not saying Law isn't a brilliant player. He's a fantastic player and he's obviously great energy around the squad. But Leinster didn't really need a winger. And they brought in a guy you now that ties their hands in the overseas over player rule. I understand why they got him. He's a fantastic player. And I'm sure he's a, a smashing guy. And all, everything about him seems good. He's very positive. But in terms of their, like, 
the one of the problems I had is that there's some Lance Stringer down the food chain is going to lose his contract. Mm. Who went through the academy, went through the whole system to play for Leinster, is going to get caught because they don't need a slot in the wing. That's the reality of it. Uh, so I don't think they really needed James Law to start with, and they've proven they can survive it. Well, more than survive it of him. But that's the thing; they might prove it again. And that's not taking that away from him as a player. I think he's a fantastic player, and you would want him on the field if you could. But there is a this whole European thing becomes a, a crisis, no management situation, mm. trying to trying to accommodate him in the, in the backline. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky, but yeah. I'd rather have him in my squad. Definitely, I think he's. You're in love with him, I can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> Honestly, I came back from, uh, from six months away and like, the first match I watched was James Lowe playing for Leinster. I was like, jeez, <laughs> I shouldn't have left at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I hope he plays. He yeah. has been a, a, a part of Leinster's attack, I suppose again intermittently, but uh, we've maybe not seen him, look like obviously we didn't see him the last day, for example, but Murray, you've had a look at Leinster's attack overall, I think. Uh, going into yeah. the game at the weekend. Well, we're going to come to Rasting's lineup defence, which is going to be a big oh, sure. issue. But um, first, we kind of want to look at some of the Leinster stats from their tries, um, <coughs> header scoring tries, um, and their launch from set piece has been really important. You know, a, a kind of predominant share of their tries there coming from lineout platforms. Seventeen tries from there. The scrum stats have been good. Lineout has been shaky a couple of times, but tries from lineout seventeen, scrum five, really good on kick return. Um, and I was kind of surprised actually, only one turnover try, but. Uh, when they get a good launch off set piece, they're really good I- in phase play. I think they're, they've scored the most tries of any team <coughs> when they've got above 10 phases. They're really good at grinding it out. You, you remember an Exeter away, what they go through, 20-something phases. Well, that's because they have um, so many strike players. You know, they're all, all, Pretty much all the Leinster players are good ball carriers. So everybody can actually attack the gain line. There's nobody who's not going to get off the gain line for you. And they can build immense pressure. As you saw against Exeter, one try was 35 phases, not yeah. almost 25 or something. And it was like the way Exeter played on, they played Exeter at their own game. I, I, I remember those two back-to-backs. In my head, I said, this is Leinster season for Heineken or European Cup. Yeah. Because they, they were so comprehensively uh, superior to Exeter, who are the best team in England. Nobody would argue with that. I know Sargent's are close to them, but they, just were so, they were just so comfortable at, at Exeter that I thought, Jesus, it's going to be partly impossible to beat Leinster this year, and that's mm. the way it's panned out. They've cruised yeah. along after that, you know. And there are similar, like obviously a lot of players are similar to Ireland, but they're so comfortable at retaining possession. Um, whereas last season it was more about the kind of kick return and turnover, a lot of that kind of expansive play, whereas now it's quite power based. They're really good at keeping possession. Um, and we're going to look at some of the examples from this. And sorry, Mark, before you touch that, it, as well, the, the other thing is, as well as that power game, they can play east west as well. Yeah. They've got good skill sets. They've got pace, and if you get narrow against them, they get round you. Mm. And if you spread out against them, they go through they go you. Through, yeah, so yeah. it's a bit of a nightmare playing Leinster at the moment, if they mm. get their tactics right. Yeah, very complete side. Uh, here we're going to look at some of the examples of how they got over the front foot on, on first phase and gave themselves chances to build a score. Uh, this is 10 minutes in, and it's going to end with, James, with the James Ryan try. They go, um, you see these two guys from the front of the line out, they're going to get out across the 15 and create a bit of an overla- overload in that, in that area just behind the line-out against the Scarlets. Uh, they come off the top and y- they set up for this maul here, so Scarlets pack obviously commit into that. But you're actually going to see James Ryan turning. He's going to pass off to, to Luke McGrath there. Uh, and, you, and you've got uh, Levy there across the 15-metre channel already, com- having come from the front of the line-out. He's going to create that kind of tunnel we saw for, for Ireland, actually, for the CJ Sander try uh, between Levy and, and Henshaw. And again, they're just looking to sit down those inside defenders um, and make a bit of a three on f- or four on three situation on the edge. We get to both sexes, and, and he's, you know, it's tempting for him from that position to pass, but what he's so good at is that little extra step just to commit that defender there. 
uh, Hadley Parks commits into him. And Gary Ringrose just outside him runs a really good uh, decoy line or option line here just on his outside shoulder. He's just trying to isolate Scott Williams in the defence there and just sit him down uh, so that when the ball goes at the back, now Williams is trying to recover his feet. Nathewa has come all the way around there uh, and got to his outside shoulder. And he's now trying to turn Steph Evans in just to create that two and one on the outside edge. Does that really well. Um, and it looks like a, a probable try-scoring situation. I thought they were going to score actually here. But maybe a slightly early pass from, from Carney out to, to McFadden there. And some really good scramble defence. That's Williams coming back there having recovered uh, and half Benny across from the other side of the pitch. They tackle him, but a phase later, uh, Lencer over to James Ryan. Just a couple of minutes later, we're into 13 minutes um, and we see uh, the exact same play. You see the guys come from the front of the line out there again. Uh, that's Healy and Levy again. Off the top, uh, the little dummy mole at the back to Gibson Park. Um, but this time they just run the kind of mirror image of it. Uh, instead of going through that tunnel, it's Henshaw taking that really direct carry. Uh, it makes a really good game line. You talk about all their physical carriers. That's a prime example of it. And they go into their phase play. We've skipped two phases on here. And you're going to see a clever little setup. You know, it's, it's a four-phase power play. Really detailed stuff. Stuff Ireland are well known for. you got Healy in the middle of the, the pod there with Toner uh, and Ryan. And he's generally not known for his passing game. More of a carrier. But he just turns out the back to Sexton there. And you're going to see Henshaw run this superb line again. He's just so... Uh, brilliant on those direct lines. The Scarlets do recover, but another massive gain line, um, and they build towards what should have been a uh, should have been a try again. Really good stuff off set piece. Here's another example. Uh, 23 minutes. Um, they play off the off the dummy mall again. There's McFadden. He's going to pop off to Henshaw coming on a direct line. Get that initial gain line, um, and a really good breakdown. We've looked at that in the 42 quite a bit. McFadden and there's Furlong in particular driving off the ball. It's a really interesting little shape now. You've got Ringrose coming up as first receiver. So Sexton hasn't even been the first receiver yet. I think that's been a really positive development in their play. He's got those two forwards either side of him. Sexton at the back, and generally you're going to go for the tip onto one of the forwards or back to Sexton. But Jordy Murphy just here, he stays hidden until the last kind of moment. We run on slowly there. Um, and it looks like an inside pass to Cronin there, but Murphy just comes really late. Um, and in fairness to Scarlets this time, they do, uh, do well to recover, but... Again, a really good advantage line, really good front foot ball, and they can build from there into that phase play. One of the things we just want to look at, get a bit nostalgic with Champions Cup finals coming up, um, Leo Cullen back in his playing days, there he is in the line out. There's Redden at the front. Um, this is a classic try, probably all the Lens fans here know this particularly well. You've got Heath Slip getting across the 15 there. Sean O'Brien's going to run that direct line there, um, the decoy, out the back to Sexton. And he's got options either side. He's got O'Driscoll running that hard line there. Fitzgerald on the inside. Now, we spoke about this before. It's shocking defence from Cardiff. God. This <laughs> guy here just... Dustpin lit over those guys. <laughs> <laughs> but lovely handling. And there's a really good support line, positive support line from O'Driscoll. Um, and goes in for a pretty classic try. When we rewind, uh, or when we fast forward, rather, just over five years later, Leo Cullen, now the coach, um, you're going to see exactly the same play from the other side of the pitch. Uh, there's Luke McGrath at the front of the line out. He's going to come around. O'Brien's going to uh, go across the 15 this time in a different role here. Um, and you're going to get a Henshaw running that direct line. They don't use a forward in that position this time. Out the back of Henshaw to the 10, which is Ross Byrne here. The inside pass to McFadden. And away he goes in the break. Now, unfortunately, this time, maybe 
Ringrose still has a bit of a way to go before he's Brian O'Driscoll-esque. He's just kind of struggling to keep up there. Um, and some really good defence from, from Noel. He kind of shepherds Rob Carney. But I just thought it was interesting to see um, Leo Cullen using a play that he, he'd been part of as a player, uh, now as a coach. Um, and I think there are just a few examples of how they launch, even when they're not scoring directly off it. Um, well, I lost to, to get that. always ask a question um, in the sense that if you defend it well, you probably don't have a line break, but you still lose the collisions because of isolated defenders. So you get a good game line. But if they defend it badly, as we saw, you just rip them open and score. So th those starter players should do that. They should ask every defender to do something. And if they don't do it, you punish them. And if they do it, you still win the collision. And you see there as well um, that what they're doing as well, you, you can run the same looking play, but you have different strike points in it. You had the first one there around the corner and the second one where they hit up. Yeah. So you can set teams up like that. You can maybe play up the guts a couple of times. So when you run it again, they condense and you go out the back and you go around them. Or you can go wide on them, get them to spread, and then the next time you run it, you go through them. So if you win that psychological battle defensively, the opposition really get panicky. They don't know what to expect. So what you're doing there is just it's the same play but different options on it. And it, yeah. it really frazzles the brain of the defence. If they lose the first one, they'll start panicking. Mm. We should also make the point that it's, it's very simple stuff. Like, you no, know, it's you, not rocket science. You go yeah. and watch a junior yeah. club, they're doing some yeah. similar stuff. But they do it very well, though. They do it so well. Yeah, yeah. And that's Leinster. They, like and a lot of it is everyone's a threat. Like, sometimes you see teams and their line, well, their lines are not particularly strong lines. They're poor attacking lines. And the defender will smart as well. Well, he's not getting the ball, so don't defend him. He's never getting it. You can know by his body language or he's too deep or he's too far away. He's never getting the ball. So you can make smart reads on a play if every player doesn't execute well. And that's what Leinster do. They make everybody a threat. So everybody has to be respected. And that's mm. when you get the line break or the, or the game line. Yeah, and you get that in their phase play as well. Really good footwork before the carry. Really <coughs> good latch. There's always an option on the other side of the mm. rook for, for a carry to keep the defence occupied there. Um, as we said, they've just got a lot of different strings to their bow. And a lot of wrinkles in their, in their attack. Yeah, yeah. No. And it's not, it's not rocket science, but they've just focused. We have, we have the best players, in their opinion. We the best players, let's just do this basic stuff better than anyone else. Um, and it's been so effective. When we saw how integral the line-out was to a lot of that, and you're going to look at the Racing line-out as well. Obviously, they put the heebie-jeebies up. Niall Scanlon and Munster the last day. It, it yeah. Munster kind of unraveled, but a lot of that was down to Racing's fine work. And I, I know um, there was some talk from Munster during the week that oh, it doesn't matter that Donegal Ryan has been in this line-out before. It'd oh, be, yes, it does. It'd be reticent, yeah. Yeah, we'd be reticent to change too much. Maybe they should have changed some of it. Yeah. But Rassing, generally speaking, are very strong in that area of the field. Yeah. To be fair to Rassing also, when he didn't play, now I would imagine he completely prepped him yeah. that match he missed with his neck injury back in Tone Park. They also did an unbelievable job on the Munster line-out. But again, we can get a couple of their stats up. Um, they've, they've on the opposition throw, they've had 18% success rate, so either win or spoiling it, winning a penalty. Um, I think only Harlequins, which is a weird outlier, have had a higher percentage of 22%. Um, 12 outright steals, which is more than anyone. And they've got a load of different guys who can go up. Nakarawa with three, Laurie with three, Shuzanu, who comes off the bench uh, with three steals as well. So I think that's the key. They've got a lot of explosive athletes, guys who read the line out well as individuals. <coughs> and they're easy to get up. Yeah, they like, they're springy. Like the reason O'Mahony is such probably one of the best lineup defenders in the world, Peter O'Mahony is that he's he's very easy to get in the air because mm. he's he's light and he's a good spring in his step, but he's also very smart. He makes a good read. He puts his position and he's up. And like he stole the last ball of the game against Edinburgh last week. Yeah. But for some reason Edinburgh threw the ball where Peter O'Mahony was. It was the last place you throw the yeah. ball against Munster, and that cost him the potential of the game. But th the same with with, with the, the, the that line out is the. Racing have that ability. They're quick on the ground, quick in the air, 
And if they make a smart read, it puts massive pressure on the hooker. Massive. Yeah, in fairness to a man, he actually, I think he had six steals in the Champions Cup, so he's, he's top of the charts, but they've got spread across their line out. And we want to look at a couple of examples from, from the Munster game. I'd be interested in Eddie's thoughts on this first one. Um, I don't know if people remember this, but like they talked up the Rasting line out all week. Johan van Kram was talking about them being the second best defensive line out, man marking style after the, li- after the All Blacks. Um, and even when they went to the U Arena, the first line out they overthrew deliberately to, to Rory Scanlon and kind of botched that one. But it was clearly in their heads like when, someone, when someone's so strong in the area, yeah, sometimes it makes sense to try and negate it by completely avoiding it. But I don't know if that mindset kind of crept in a little bit too much. Um, this is the first line out of the game, you know, less than a minute in, and you want to really set a platform and, and get that good start, even if it means going through phases, try to win a penalty, kick for territory. Um, and you see it here, it's, they've shortened the numbers, Munster, but they've Nakarawa, Ryan, and Nyanga there. And, you know, Laurie can come in there, LaRue can come in there against Leinster, so they've got a lot of options. Um, and Omahni moves to the front there, you see him, a little dummy jump, um, and he steps out of the pod, little throw to the front where there's no lift. Um, and they go straight back to it. Now, it nearly did work out, but uh, Scannell, we're going to see from the r- reverse angle, uh, just puts his foot into touch, a little bit sloppy. What did you think of as, as a coach, Eddie, as a kind of stra- strategic thing well, in the first it minute? It's not a bad play, actually. It's not a, it's not a bad play at all. But I think it's just the wrong part of the field. To me, that's what I call a power play, where if it works, you're looking to score. Right. So, by and large, a lot of power plays in those situations should come in that deep green, like five, six, seven, eight meters from the goal line, where they might be expecting a drive. Now, if you do that five or six meters out, he's a chance of scoring. Forget he put his foot in touch. Let's say he doesn't put his foot in touch. It's a one on one five meters out, and maybe he drops his shoulder and scores. Yeah. Now, in fairness, Racing did deal well with it. But to run it here, best case scenario here is Scannell gets tackled here. Mm. Mash and recovers, it, or, yeah. Yeah, it gets tackled here and they play from a rock on the touchline. I think just the wrong place to use it. it just mm. should have, that's something you put out of your pocket very close to the goal line, and if it works, you'll probably score. But if it works 15, 20, 30 metres out, you're not going to score. Yeah. You've still got to go and play out of it. And you would have been better off taking that off the top, sticking somebody over the gain line at 10, 12, and going to play some phases, build some pressure, maybe nick a penalty. Instead, you know, they, 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 the next time they have a line out down there, the, Rassing are watching for that. Yeah, like in fairness, Munster did actually try a, a trick play at the line out where Murray went in the front, uh, they threw down to middle, but well Ryan, it, it's Ryan a, read it it's brilliantly. A, it's see, it's only a trick if Sid Bill had seen it before. Yeah, and Ryan probably <laughs> made that mean, one up. Conor Murray's one more line up all this year than a lot of the table <laughs> forwards. You know, like he's been used an awful lot, which is fine, but like it, it's only a trick if they buy into it. But I, I guarantee you, the minute they saw Murray in the line. They knew there was something up, you know. Mm. Yeah, Ryan did. We want to just look at a couple of the other kind of kind of failings from Munster. They're 24-3 down now, but still 30 minutes in, good chance to launch. Um, and the one we want to pick out here is Camille Shad. He's the the kind of receiver, normally the kind of shotgunner. He needs to be that first defender out from the line out. What Munster do is we're just going to note CJ Standard there as well. He's going to come in and lift. And like as as you said to me before, nothing revolutionary, but I think it's really well read. There's Shad in behind, um, and Munster used that dummy movement again with Jean Klein there. It's easy to go up on him, but Nakarawa makes a really good read. But also, it's, it's kind of difficult to see from this angle. Shat makes a really good read as well and gets in there to lift. So it's a one-on-one uh, ball steal at the line-out. So Munster denied that opportunity. But the point is just, even the hooker, even the defensive hooker, the receiver, well, is making good reads. That tactic of using a roving lifter, or, or he, I mean, standard could be a lifter or a jumper. Yeah. Right? He's roving at the line-out. The way to defend that is you mirror him. 
And that's what exactly what they did. So when Standard came into jump, they got our interlift, they got interlift, and they were where the action was. And there you go. You know, it's a that's a practically impossible ball to, to win because they've got somebody right in the air of the jumper. Yeah, and I so think it's, it's good defence by Racing. Yeah, at this stage, I think Racing were right in Munster's heads. They everything kind of started falling apart. This is a pretty simple one. They go to John Klein and it's supposed to see uh, Jack uh, O'Donoghue coming in there to to get them all started. But the play call seems to go awry. He throws down as O'Donoghue is committing into the mall, um, and it's a scrappy possession, so Munster again can't launch. You see Rassing, they're so good at the breakdown as well, uh, just slowing the ball down. Um, and this is, again, back in the 22, O'Mahony goes to the front, they're trying to use that movement to, to kind of lure the Rassing guys forward, but they stay in the middle. Uh, there's Ryan again. Um, they don't buy that movement, and suddenly now Munster aren't really sure where to go. It's a kind of panicky situation. They thought they'd pull a pod to the front on, on, on uh, O'Mahony. There error upon error. Yeah. Marshall's waiting, um, and they just go to the front in the end, but it's a complete overthrow and another, another failing. Um, and then just the last one, still 20 minutes in the game left, um, and still a chance to come back into it. But again, you have all these defensive line-out options. Five guys in a full line-out. Uh, there's Ryan as well as um, Shuzanu, uh, and they're they're covering everything so well, aren't they? They're just, you don't know where to throw to. Omani calls this one on himself, um, but Shuzanu is going to get up uh, just in front of him and get that steal, uh, and that's pretty much the game over. Um, really disappointing one, but I guess, Eddie, again, on a strategic sense, if you're the coach, if you're Leo Cullen and building a line-out kind of menu for this, do you actively uh, work at avoiding that confrontation in the air, or do you try to do something smarter? Do you just go simple? Well, no, I think you, obviously they're going to change this. The, like, there's probably north of 70 different liner options they have, maybe 100. And you never go into the game with 100 liner options. You, you, you pick a block of them that you feel are going to work, and then the next week you change to another block. That block changes on the basis of that. You can't use the same ones as last week, and also the defence is going to be different than it was last week. So it's, it's always changing. And I think, like, Leinster still have three very good jumpers, Ryan, Fardy, and Toner. And Toner, again... Even if you know Toner's getting the ball, it's very hard to get up as high as him. He's so tall, he's got long arms. You know, it's so I don't think there's any problem with Leonard. I don't I think no Racing might pluck one or two, but I, I don't see the Leinster lineup being a problem because they, they've got and it's a smart lineout. Leo played Leno Leo knows lines, he ran lineouts, he knows how to run lineouts internationally and at club level. So it's gonna be a very smart lineout. They'll call it well and they have three really good jumpers. I don't think Rassing are going to get much dividends there. And if they do, it's the same problem that Munster had, but I don't see it. They don't need to do anything too spectacular. just need to be quick and accurate. A lot of time what happens when teams get caught is they start to second-guess a bit. Mm. And that's bad enough, but then the pod slows down. They're moving on the ground, slows down. So the guy's moving to lift the guy, moves slower, and then it takes longer to get the pod in the air, and the opposition will get more time to react. Is that so due to uncertainty that they slow yeah, down? Yeah, and a bit of kind of your your head goes into a bit of a frazzle, and it's that. It, and it, you're talking about half a step, like if 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 that's a half step quicker, they don't lose the ball. Hmm. You know, it's that's it's that it's like throwing a punch. Like you know, it, if you get your land your punch first, their their punch doesn't land, and and that's a bit like what you've got to do. Sometimes when you lose a couple of lines, just stick to the plan, stay focused still get your speed on the ground. A lot of the time it's the lack of speed on the ground gets you caught in the ear. And then the hooker gets blamed. You can always blame the hooker anyway. So, <laughs> you know. But even there, there's th those, like, they had no chance really because it wasn't the hooker's fault. Just, there were just bad calls or, or good reads on, on, on Rassing's part. Yeah. So like, for that reason, I, I don't think Leinster have their problem. I really don't. 
we might call that half time lads uh, we'll be back in 15-20 minutes uh, take your time just work away with uh, the bar and whatnot, and we'll chat you in a few cheers welcome back how's it going hope you enjoyed the break uh, did you enjoy it lads are you okay that's good yeah no. <laughs> uh, we'll be taking your questions as I mentioned earlier didn't quite get around to the end of the first half there but we will do it at the end and whoever has the best question I should have said earlier will be taking on the Leinster jersey Eddie will be deciding there you look like you might need a new one for example although the guy in the back there definitely doesn't want one uh, <laughs> you can still ask a question you can turn down the jersey it's okay we'll give it we'll give it a charity uh, but we'll um, yeah we'll get to that at the end so look if you have anything to ask just kind of make a note of it and uh, we'll uh, get around to you all nobody will be left hanging but we'll kick back off uh, what is the story here um, yeah like one of the things I suppose that obviously we focus a lot on Leinster in the first half and touched upon Racing's line out prowess but Racing Racing's sort of development overall as a squad has been uh, very impressive over the last couple of years particularly when like when they <sighs> became a major player in Europe, we'll say, that with sort of a cash injection and all that, it was kind of like, well, they might go on a sort of a two-line run. It never quite came to fruition. But now they seem to be building a, a decent nucleus and a squad that can maybe challenge almost perennially as a sort of, um, I guess, or, almost organically, that they don't necessarily need to be bringing in these massive, massive players every year that they have a... Well, they're still yeah. going to probably. But they still, still can pay guy like Zebo a lot of money. But I, I like the way they've gone about doing in the last 10 years like 2009 they won the pro do they were down in the second division in 2006 when you, when jackie lorenzetti the owner took over um, and it's been a gradual build since then get promoted obviously put a lot of money into that but 2013 the Le Laurent, uh, and Traverse come in as head coach <coughs> excuse me they were really good really good record with montaban cast they won the top 14 with before so i think they were good appointments um, and ron o'gara obviously gets a lot of credit julie for for the defense but those two guys have been uh, really good. They're technically good, and they're probably a little bit less emotive than some French coaches who tend to go off the wire pretty pretty easily. Um, but they've also done really well off the pitch. They've built a really nice training facility uh, in Plessis Robinson, one of the nice Parisian suburbs. The U Arena has a really impressive stadium, um, and actually that's a clever move as well because they built it as a venue, which is also their their rugby stadium, if you know what I mean. So they have a lot of gigs, and actually last weekend they had to move their match because I think. Beyonce was playing at the at the home <laughs> venue. They moved up to to Van up in in Brittany, which was would actually you know a clever Beyonce idea. You would. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be familiar with Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can't unring it though. Yeah, sorry. Go on. <laughs> so the <laughs> good one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they've uh, they've done a lot of clever stuff off the pitch, um, and now I think they're actually going to make money back from from that stadium as well. So all this investment he's put into. Uh, Lorenzetti's put into the club and he will continue to do that um, they'll, they'll get back I think like you compare them to Toulon they're vastly more likeable I think because Lorenzetti doesn't come out doesn't spout in the press a lot I think his only blip was trying to merge the club with Stade Francais which was a pretty big blip by, <laughs> it was by all accounts major. Yeah. Um, but I think even that was from this kind of spirit of, of Parisian rugby which is kind of extravagant and, and there's that kind of history as well so I think he's been really smart in how he's used his money and now they are as you say a consistent force they were in the 2016 final won the top 14 that year um, and now they're back again obviously a, a dip last season but but a really good setup um, I've, I've been really impressed with them like they uh, we've seen with say Claremont in, uh, in the top 14 a couple of times they've taken some hidings off Toulon, in, in, uh, which was the game that sort of put the fear of God into Munster in a way where Toulon put 50-odd points on them. But Racing also did that to Claremont, like as in they 
and I suppose they showed in the first half against Munster as well like when they get going like they're incredibly difficult to stop are we in danger of because this has been almost a procession for Leinster granted they've put in an enormous amount of effort to get this far but they haven't really like nobody's come within an ass's roar of them if we're honest are we in danger of almost overlooking Rassing a little bit going into this final because it's like the red carpet has almost been rolled out that we've thought Leinster are going to win all year yeah I think that was certainly the case for the semi-final I think probably everyone underestimated Rassing um, probably not Munster I think they looked a bit overawed by it a little bit but I think there was an expectation kind of that Munster were going to go over there um, and win and set up that All-Ireland final but I think that was probably a little bit disrespectful to Rassing certainly they've got all the core elements like their defence is really solid uh, they've fix their discipline to a, to a degree and um, we're going to look at the stats in a while they do tend to dip off in, in game still but they're working hard on that fitness element um, and they start like a freight train they're so strong actually i don't know if you can bring up those those stats on luke but that's one of the key areas for for leinster because like monster Munster were finished after after 20 minutes realistically these are the stats the kind of points difference per quarter um, and we're rasting on top so in quarter one, their, their points difference is plus 40. They start so strongly, uh, blow teams away. We saw it both times against Munster in the Urian and in Bordeaux. But then you can see that dip, and towards the end of the match, they're, they're minus 13 in, in the fourth quarter of games. Leinster, very different numbers, um, as you can see. Uh, plus seven at start, they don't start too poorly. But then in those two quarters, before and after, after halftime, they tend to, to kind of blow teams away. Um, but I think that quarter one, Eddie, it looks like the, the make or break of this game really for Leinster. Yeah, if they can contain, what will happen is they contain Rassing for that first quarter. They don't have to do anything, Leinster, just hold them. Uh, Rassing will be kind of knocked out of kilter and they'll, they'll start to doubt themselves a little bit. And you can see as well, it's a very French side because they, they, there's an emotional content to their game. They start with that huge emotion and energy and um, very effective at racking up scores. And then we saw against Munster, once they knew the game was in the bag, they kind of sit back and let you come at them and they're happy enough. And they, in the last 10 minutes, they know they give up a couple of tries. So what? It doesn't make any difference. It's a very French mentality. The game is won. And in the same way, they can, if French teams haven't changed on the base, that at some point in the game, a French team makes a decision whether they're going to win or not. And if they decide it's not for them, then they just kind of, <laughs> that's it. They do that. They still do that. And that's why you see, sometimes simpler. you see these scores in, in the French championship is like, know 50 points you know and, and they yeah. get racked up in the last quarter so yeah that start if Leinster contained that start um, and enough to do onto Leinster just contain it so after 20 minutes it's a le it's a pretty even game and then Leinster looking to put their foot down on that 20 minutes each side of the half and really ramp it up and that's I think that's very telling yeah. that if they can if the Leinster can deliver this and prevent that it's probably there that's the game there yeah like, Leinster's you know? trend there is almost like there's a touch of Ireland about that I suppose particularly in the quarter before half time we saw that against Wales and, and where Ireland like in a sort of a touch and go game give themselves some breathing space and then they're coming out sort of with a renewed sense of vigour and a little bit of a cushion in the second half and obviously mm. that you tend to associate it with mentally strong teams like championship minutes well, we're score, going to score scoring, here scoring if you're Ireland did this a lot in the six minutes they scored each side of half time yeah. literally the last and sometimes the clock was in the red when they scored at mm. half time you know it's just gone into 41 minutes they score they come out in the second half score early in the second half and psychologically usually the game is over there it's very hard for teams to come back from that and Leinster followed that mantra as well they, they, they really try and ramp it up coming into half time and start very strong in the second half so if you have any notion that you're going to come back into the game they kill it off you know and yeah. the game is it's still a very psychological game because it's the physicality element of the game and once you like we've talked about this before if you drop five percent in intensity that's a 20 percent drop in performance it's it's just a, it's an amazing thing and you know guys don't hit as hard they don't work as hard and you get more space 
and you can you can really kill teams. But that's that middle part of the game for Leinster is very important. No, having said that, let's say that it's pretty even after 20 minutes, and then the next 20 minutes are still pretty even, and the next 20 minutes are still pretty even. I think the problem here for Leinster is that if there's a problem, let's say that before we say the problem, is that definitely Leinster the favourites. So if, if you're coaching a team and you're not the favourites, the most important thing to do is stay in the game. So what you say to your team is if you're playing, they're, they're, they're hot favourites, they're expected to go and beat us. Let's have a one-score game with 10 minutes on the clock. Now, if you're a score ahead, it's great, but it, that's not that important, even if it's just scored down, because the game is still on. And this team that we're expected to win have all sorts of doubts creeping in now. Let's say we get to the third quarter and it's 15-all or 15-9 or 15-12. Leinster are going to start thinking, this wasn't really in the script because everyone was telling us for the last month we're favourites. Hmm. And that, that can be quite telling as well. Is it the case for the underdog team, say, they're going along and I suppose the longer they stay in the game, yeah. the more, in, they, in, more and in. more they believe hang and in, the reverse is true in. of That's the favourites. Just hang in there, hang in there. And... If you get into the last 10 minutes in a one-score game, now it's, let's mm. see who has it. And, and that can, if you've been the favourites, that's a very tough place to be. Because now you start to realise, gee, we could lose this game. This could go wrong here. Uh, whereas for the team who are expected to lose, they're going, it's still on. Let's go for it. And it's a, it's a funny dynamic, but that's why, you know, it'll be interesting going into the last 10 minutes. If it's still, if it's still a one-score game on Saturday, that's when Rassing will probably go to the wall and that could be dangerous yeah you, you mentioned containing in the first quarter I think that's going to be a massive psychological thing and I just want to look at the example of last year bring up some bad memories here for Leinster fans um, but when I was watching Racing against Munster in that semi-final they blew them away in the first 20 minutes it actually made me think of the semi-final last year and, and Leinster has spoken a lot about how this game has driven them they tend to review it from time to time just to, as that reminder uh, it's been a big driver in their group as well as the Scarlets semi-final defeat but <coughs> they did something similar to Munster they gave Claremont that in into the game. And as you say, they're momentum-based. Once you give them that in, yeah. they tend to thrive and put the foot down. We just want to look at, at what kind of went wrong for, for Leinster in those opening 15 minutes. Um, here we are again, early line-out. We've just looked at a similar example against Racing. Um, and again, you talk about play selection, Eddie. They decide to go to the tail uh, to, to Devon Toner there. Really good line-out target, obviously, but they just overthrow it. That's unfortunate, obviously. Um, and and uh, Claremont regathered the ball uh, but what happens next is really interesting from Leinster's point, Leinster's point of view, and something they will have learned from, I think, uh, Claremont decided to go for the bomb there uh, and just put some pressure back on Leinster. Uh, Fergus McFadden, who was very unfortunate actually to, to miss this game, he just gets that hand onto the ball and tips it back to Leinster. So let's recover here. We've got the ball back. Um, I don't think you'd see Leinster do this this season. Ringrose beats uh, a tackle there, uh, has a chance just to set up the ball, but he instead kind of opts for this very high risk chip kick away uh, and gives the ball back to, to Claremont again and that's just something they thrive on all the French teams uh, just one pass out to Dave Streddle here and he's going to burst all the way down the pitch uh, in the third minute uh, it should have been an attacking situation for Leinster to put some pressure on but they compound the error um, and we roll on a couple of phases later um, and Leinster just get a bit tight on the outside edge of their defence there it's Ringrose again actually uh, and Para makes this lovely uh, double skip pass to the outside edge skirts around them, little chip ahead, uh, and Yato's pace takes them clear. So you've already made that, that big error. Uh, now it's about selling yourself into the game, not compounding on top of that. What happens next is, <coughs> is pretty disastrous. So they go with uh, a wide, 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 three passes in a row to get to the outside edge, uh, Clermont, but, but Leinster are actually in a pretty good position here. You know, you've got two oh, on but two. Just go back on that there, Murray, sorry. And roll back. It's actually, 
Yeah, when that pass released, just as he releases that second pass over the top. Keep going. Right there. So this one. Look how narrow the Leinster defence is. Like you've got 50 metres of space there. They've got two attackers. Luckily for Leinster, is that ball doesn't go to hand. If yeah. that ball goes to hand, I think they're on the corner. If it doesn't go to hand. Yeah, they get a bit of a let off. It doesn't go to hand yeah. and they're in pretty good nick. But Nathaniel just sits back on his heels a little bit um, and then compounds the error again. He, he grabs onto the jersey there uh, and he's going to get a yellow card for that uh, penalty offence. And Claremont go to 10 0. We're not even 10 minutes into the game. Um, so they're down to 14 now. Uh, and again, it's just don't build and build on errors and errors. Mm. They go for another throw to the tail. Uh, in their own 22 this time, all the way over the top, uh, and Claremont snap up that ball. <laughs> yeah, pretty depressing. That was a big sigh, was it? <laughs> uh, and a couple of phases later, again, same mistake. Obviously, their number's down here, but it's just that, that narrow edge on the defence. And Dan Levy gets caught ball watching for now. the same. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, I, I don't think Dan Levy now makes the same error. I don't think, you know, he gets a little bit Watch tight Levy there. Here. He's just even then he's he's a little bit tight but at the same time you see he, he just tracks the ball as it leaves the guy's hands mm. and it's an oh shit moment <laughs> when it gets outside him but if, if he's looking out there you can't look in or look out you've got to keep your head in a swivel if he looks looking out he can he can get a little more weight and he doesn't get caught he doesn't get beaten by the ball mm. particularly for a forward on that outside channel like if you're fast you don't have to be that smart about defending that because you can cover it with your pace but if you're a forward you've got to be very smart about how you defend that channel yeah so there's technical errors there's tactical setup errors there but i think the overall point is and i do think Lancer have learned massively from this i think they're so far well, beyond we where they were this again the last last night we were doing this it was that the leinster had this concern about their defense out wide for a while and as the season goes on it's got better and better and better so mm. they are addressing that issue yeah and mentally it's just don't compound. You, you know, you're going to make an error. They are big guys. The most important thing when you make strong. an error is not to make a second one. But you do see teams making a, an error. Then someone tries to fix it and they make another error. And then someone goes for broke and tries to fix it again and makes another. So if you make three errors in a row, it's never going to end well. And often under pressure, people try and fix things uh, by doing something special. When all you've got to do is not make a second mistake. So is it a case like that? Rather, so you make an error, but rather than do something extraordinary to make amends, just go back to normal and just keep it at base level and stop, stop, kill. It's like, you know, stop the bleeding there and then. Just make one error. You will make an error. Stop it there. Don't try and force it and create a second error. And you see teams will make a third error just to try and get themselves out of a bigger hole. So take the shovel off them yeah. and just calm down. <laughs> I think mentally they're. I think they're mentally far, far more advanced. Like Levy makes an error there later in this same game. He scores that try where they go to length of pitch. We mentioned before where he uh, took Rougerie out. I think now he makes that rook hit yes. first time, gets him to ground rather than having to scrabble around his ankle yeah. and get a try disallowed. So I think they're they're much further on. One of the things we should mention is that Rassinger missing probably their most important player in in Maxi Huge. Huge. How, yeah. How big how big has he been for them? How important has he been? He's, he's probably, I would argue himself in power, the two best scrum halves in France. His game management, his understanding of what's needed, when it's needed, is, uh, is top drawer. He's a very, very good scrum half. He's a fantastic place kicker. And um, I just think he's a massive loss to them. And now the question is, do they start Carter now at 10 to get that experience in that half-back position. Mm. I think Pat Lambie's a decent player, but he's, he's no Dan Carter, he's no Johnny Sexton. I mean, the one guy to go toe to at Sexton next Saturday, look him in the eye, is uh, Carter, you know? And yeah. I would think they have to think about putting somebody of that experience and gravitas on the field to start. Bringing Carter off the bench with 20 minutes to go is, is not gonna do anything. He's not gonna win the game if they're behind. Uh, you know, maybe he can close it out if they're ahead, but they might not be ahead without him. 
So I, I would start Carter in there, and like he's the one guy that can eyeball Sexton uh, legitimately, because Sexton is on top of his game, and he's one of the best fly halves in the world. There's the other guy who can go toe to him. He shouldn't be sitting on the bench, I think, if, especially yeah. when Mashino is gone, because you need that control at halfback. Who's going to manage Racing through the yeah. game, you know. Well, it's it's going to be Teddy Ira Barron is going to come in at nine, yeah, but like obviously it. that there's probably parallels there. It's a household name. <laughs> but that's yeah. the thing, I suppose, is that it, there's maybe parallels between himself and Gibson Park, where he might come in and do a, a more than solid job, but you probably yeah. need one of your, like the other halfback to be. Yeah, that's them. my whole point. It has yeah. to be I, someone who's can all, can see the bigger picture and manage yeah. the game under pressure. He, he's 27, but I think McCarthy would probably be the more apt comparison. He's only This will be his third start in the Champions Cup, I think. Right. He's mm -hmm. very inexperienced at this level. He's small. Uh, talking to some of the wrestling players today, they mentioned how kind of wild he is with his play. And it <laughs> didn't sound like a <laughs> good thing. It doesn't sound great. He, he, I don't think he can stick to the structure as much. Uh, he kind of goes off on his own little runs. Obviously, he's a danger on the snipe, but... Yeah, I don't think Lambie is, is, has the, the, the game to manage... You know that that the pressure there. I think he's a good footballer, Lambert. But he's mm. he's no he's no Dan Carter. And I think if he's playing six, he would be looking his chops. You know. Yeah. The other call they have to make is um, on the wing. Juan Imov, who missed out in the quarterfinal, semi-final by selection, has been ripping it up in the top 14 in the last two weeks. He scored uh, four tries and he's been really impressive. He captained them last weekend. So I think he comes back in the mix and like it, that just shows the class in their squad. A guy who hasn't even featured in the match day 23 could possibly come back in on the the left wing for Mark Andrew, but. Yeah, mixing. And if Tama gets a few chances, he doesn't usually yeah. leave behind him, you know. That's if the danger of a man. He, he can make tries out of nothing. He doesn't need a lot of space to hurt you, you know. Yeah. If Imhoff does come onto the left wing, like, are there any fears that if Lancer do go with Jordan Larmer, that he might be a little bit, uh, that Imhoff might gain a little bit of ground there? Like, uh, To be honest, I think Jordan Larmer is pretty much up to every test. He, he made one kind of defensive error chasing a kick against Italy that was a one on one situation. He definitely learned from that. But I think he's shown through each game that he's. Yeah, he has level. learned those lessons. Even I think of him marking yeah. Nemanja Nadolo. Obviously, he got boshed off twice. Everyone's going to yeah. do that with Nadolo. But even his technique and tackling him, letting him pass him at times, getting that side on kind of just from behind tackle mm -hmm. was clever. And he's a really combative I competitor as well. Armor. Not, at, not, not at this level down anyway. You know, it's still not test rugby. Right. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned there how like that was well it was certainly a seminal moment for Dan Levy, we'll say, but also uh, for Lencer as a squad and how uh, they've you know, managed now to uh, get into a situation where they're not compounding errors, the way maybe Munster did actually against Racing, if you were to draw the parallel between the two games. And I wanted to talk about uh, the coaching setup at Leinster, because, I mean, even though it has been 12 months since that Claremont defeat, it's still this, this sort of mental steel that, that uh, Stuart Lancaster and Leo, Leo Cullen above him have sort of implemented there is remarkable. Even over the space of a year, to get to a point where you seem indestructible compared to what you were in... in France this time last year like obviously they have a very strong dynamic but are you surprised by how far Lancer have come on in, in the intervening 12 months well I think Lancaster's always been a coach even with England he was massive on that culture you know you think of things like when when he wrote to all the players families before the 2015 World Cup and got parents wives to tell the players how much it meant to them that they were playing for England little things like that that he's he's really conscientious with and I think he's brought that to Leinster where Johnny Sexton had said a while ago that the culture probably wasn't as strong as it needed to be. Um, and they've had a huge focus on this kind of brothers mentality this season. I think it's been most apparent in their defence, which we spoke about before the semi-final, where guys' work rate is, is through the roof for each other. Um, and clearly they're enjoying that side of the game because they can show work rate for each other. So culture off the pitch has been strong, really good testament to the work of the coaches. And I think in all of this, like Lancaster gets such positive press, deservedly brilliant coach. 
Leo Cullen actually going out and getting a guy like that to come in was a very selfless act. Um, a recognition that he probably didn't have those strengths or, or needed that figure alongside him, had Graham Henry there before as well. So he deserves massive credit for that. Uh, it could have been such a tricky situation. It could end up then sort of forcing someone on him, but he went and, and got Lancaster, and uh, it's been absolutely brilliant for the province. Particularly, I suppose, when... Uh, given the fact that when Lancaster did come in, I know like there are Leinster fans here today, I'm sure not everybody was like, yeah, that's a great acquisition given how it ended with England. But obviously Lancaster, I mean, he speaks about the Claremont game last year with, you know, and you can hear the pain in his voice and he's very open and honest in how he deals with England's World Cup debacle under him as well. He seems to have a remarkable ability to sort of respond to adversity. And I suppose <laughs> given Leinster were responding to some sort of adversity at the end of last season, he's a good guy to have around the setup. Uh, as they march towards a, a Champions Cup this year. Yeah, I think he's a quite a caring individual. Like he, he has personal touches with all the players. He's sending them clips, like Johnny Sexton, for example, and sending him those Tom Brady clips, reminding that a guy can play until 40. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but <laughs> and Joey Carberry won't be too happy with that either. But <laughs> Stuck <laughs> up in Belfast for eight years. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he does, he has that nice, that, that, <laughs> that nice personal touch as well. Um, and yeah, he has bounced back remarkably well. I personally thought the whole media cover obviously the World Cup went really poorly for them, but um, it's one or two little things that could have changed a couple of those games, and, and it could be in a very different story. Uh, he's always been a good coach. I thought his record with England was, was pretty decent. Obviously, they never got over the line and won, won that Six Nations, but he brought through the, the complete core of the group that now Eddie Jones has, has benefited from. So Beat the All Blacks as well, which often I think gets overlooked. Uh, yeah, in yeah. How do you rate him as a, as a coach? Yeah, I, and I think... He, uh, the other thing he did is he, he's a uh, structural thinker on the game. You know, he puts a lot of thought into X's and O's as well. He, I, I uh, saw him doing a review, a defence review there after one of their games against Ulster. And his thinking on the game is quite structural. You can see Leinster do play to a fairly structured shape, despite the fact that they have so much talent. Uh, they, they do know what they're doing every step of the way. They're not making it up as they go along. Now, sometimes when they're 30 points up in a Pro 14 game, they do... But then it doesn't matter. But in the big games, when they need to be very focused uh, and clinical and exactly know what's required at the time, they do that. And that, that's obviously changed. And that's the precision you're talking about, that when you are smart and you make the right decisions at the right time in the right part of the field consistently, you know, for 80 minutes, whether it's you're on your own goal line or on their goal line, and in between, you do get that bulletproof look about you mm. because you have that sense of confidence. You're doing this. You do it well. And let's have a fantastic squad now as well. Let's be the, the talent is fantastic. But having said that, he's brought that. I think it's a clarity of thought around uh, what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and then the culture side is underpins that. That's for sure. Well, it's interesting to hear a guy like Jamie Heesip say the two best coaches worked with are Joe Schmidt and him. I think that speaks volumes. But the combination has worked really well. While Lancaster is doing that brilliant technical coaching, um, Danny Kerr was telling a good story about. When he came through at Leeds Tykes, they used to Lancaster used to put like fairy liquid on the ball before the passing sessions to to test them out, and um, I, I think he does that side of the game, the tactics as you mentioned, um, and Leo kind of does the planning a bit more, man manages, tells guys they're dropped, de comes and deals with the media by saying often very very little or nothing at all, uh, but he deals with that kind of annoying side of the the, the role that Lancaster probably didn't enjoy when he was with with England, so it's been a really good uh, really good combination. Uh, you touched upon him earlier on uh, in the first half, but obviously Luke McGrath has kind of quietly become integral to this Lancer setup. Obviously, like it's a, a pivoted position, scrum half, but I think because of the hype, all of it justified that surrounds Conor Murray, maybe McGrath's own development hasn't quite gotten the, um, <coughs> pardon me, the, the plaudits 
uh, that it's deserved. I, I've heard you argue in the past, Murray, that when he burnt me on the inside over in St. Michael's in 2011, that was the makings of a great player. <laughs> and it's, it's certainly seemed that way since, you know? Yeah, his he's star has risen since that day. I remember <laughs> analysing that clip, but this guy's good. Yeah. Uh, that got a lot of press coverage as well. <laughs> <laughs> but he's been absolutely excellent. I think we can get his, his stats up for, for the Champions Cup this season. Um, and he's obviously off the pitch. He's a very important leader. I think there was an, a moment um, when Johnny Sexton kicked that ball uh, against Saracens when he was running back to the halfway line, maybe just lost the head a little bit. And it's Luke McGrath goes over to him and just tells him to simmer down as Johnny Sexton was approaching the ref again to argue. <laughs> From a long yeah. way away, though. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a clever, clever guy off the pitch, but on the pitch, he's been such an important part of their attack. Um, you can see there the try assists six, so he's he obviously any scrum half is going to get a lot of assists, putting guys over the line, but he's beating defenders. 15 he's making clean line break seven um, and anytime he's been there they've just been a little bit more steady i do still think he has again room to uh, room to improve with his kicking game the consistency of it his passing off his left hand side but there's there's so much to like about his game and we're going to look at a couple of examples here you know rassinger losing their key scrum half Leinster getting their guy back um, and these are some of the things that he brings uh, he's coming off the left hand side actually a pretty poor pass off his left here but it's always him looking for the right time to snipe you know everyone knows he's a good sniper but it's the right opportunity. And here you get Tyke Furlan making a good carry. He's going to beat the first tackle. So instantly Luke McGrath is going, okay, I might have an opportunity here. What's going to be really important is, is Van der Fleer there, cleaning deep beyond the ruck. You can see him opening up that hole there. Um, and this Glasgow player here has expected that fold around the corner, but it's not coming. So that's ideal opportunity for McGrath. Now in fairness to Glasgow, they do uh, fold late and, and fill up that space, but he's so robust, even for a small guy, you see him ride the tackle here. A lot of guys would have gone down there and a lovely little, probably not even necessary, but a nice little <laughs> flick at the back of the hand uh, just to look good and, and put them on the gain line. Even when he's not making breaks, his little snipe is really important. We, we spoke about the Leinster phase play um, and it can be tough for forwards to do all that phase play, you know, another carry, another pick and jam, but he's always looking for that opportunity you see here. Uh, he's going to get Devin Toner just pushing on beyond the, the back of the ruck. That little snipe over the top. Uh, and he's never going to make the clean line break there, uh, exit or recover, but valuable meters when you're, when you're going through those phases. Another really important part of his play, he's coming from the base of the ruck here, uh, is his support play. Really good off the ball. You see him just there, he gets a real good shove from the, the Glasgow 8, uh, but he's never going to accept that. He's never going to go to ground because he wants to stay alive ahead of the ball here and, and create that overlap when Lowe makes a break. There he is popping up, he's burned a couple of his own teammates as well as some of those Glasgow players uh, and accepts the ball inside and again actually gets that cheeky little offload out the back of the hand uh, and, and they're away down the pitch. But that consistency in his support play has been really important. It's important for any scrum half but I feel he's really accelerated in that instance, uh, in that aspect of the game rather. Here you're going to get a lovely little tip on pass from, from uh, uh, James Tracy, the, the reserve hooker who's really good in that department as are all the Lancer forwards as well as the carry they have those little technical skills. He does it late to the line, so that Levy's power is even more useful because the defenders have less less opportunity, obviously, oh. to react. Oh dear God! I think our TV is about to turn <laughs> off. Seems to have been a, oh yeah, so good. Um, and Levy, like a freak, uh, freak of nature, gets that fend on Williams there after beating Steenson, um, and he's through the line. This is just after he came off the bench before his season kind of exploded. But there's McGrath having set off the this, the phase off the base of the ruck, getting on the inside shoulder gets a little fend and finishes for an absolutely vital try. As well as his attacking game, he's, uh, I think he's an underrated defender. The Leinster lads all talk really positively about him in this area. Again, he's a small guy, but really important role. It's Ringrose here trying to tackle Slade. He looks like he's gone to ground, but uh, Slade just pops up off the ground again. 
um, and he gets an offload away to, to Jack Noel there trailing. Uh, and McGrath's job is, is in the backfield. They defend with that 13 in the front line, two guys in the back, so 15 and nine generally. There's a 15, and McGrath's kind of swept across from that side, so they're trying to cover the whole field in, in behind. Um, and you, do, you know, it's not a big shot here. Oh, the TV's gone there. Uh, it was it, actually it, such a big yeah. shot that we couldn't show it to the audience. He doesn't uh, get it, he, <laughs> he doesn't get a huge shot on, but he's Life covering that, that space <laughs> in behind. Um, and he's really good in behind there. You know, he's he's really good in the one-on-one tackle. Yeah, we're going to see the tackle. It's really it's really that good. And he just gets enough on him to to slow uh, to slow Noel, and then he's back into the line there again, looking for more work. Um, and this is the final example. You see him there in the backfield. Again, they're on that 13 plus 2. Carney's back here. So they're covering all that space in behind. Uh, and when Saracens go wide, they're going to use a quick screen play off uh, Farrell in behind those two forwards. Uh, and Bosch is going to get some width on the pass. Uh, and although McFadden does well to recover there, he's got M McGrath coming up from the backfield just to combine that hit. Really solid shoulder onto the contact. Um, and that's just his, his competitiveness. You see it here again. This time he's up in the defensive line. Uh, and you're going to see him get in for a choke tackle. Again, really aggressive. Bites onto the ball there. For a small player, he's just he's so combative. And um, I think having him back is, as long as he comes through that fitness test, is, is really important for Leinster. Rassing lose their nine, but Leinster get a huge game with him. It'll be interesting, Eddie. What do you think for the Australia tour? Does, does a guy like that need to start a, a test? Yeah, probably. But um, at the same time, it'll depend if... if like he's playing very well there and he's done well when, he, when he's played for Ireland but the question is how he'll tour if he's going well on tour he's a good chance he might get a run for one of the tests but again the coach is going to see it through the prism of if they, I put this guy in it's one thing for me to experiment this guy he's got to deliver when I put him in so he's got to feel he's ready for it and you get that feeling in camp when he's there but it wouldn't be on the bones of possibility that mm. um, he'd get a start particularly if, if he finishes out the season strong he was unlucky with the injury because he was on the bench against France obviously in command yeah. that game was, it was very close and then badly timed injury yeah. Would have been interesting to see what part he would have played because, like we've spoken about on this show a lot, Conor Murray and the depth behind him. But I think McGrath's really progressed along. I think that experience. Well, he certainly exposure. got Kieran Marmion very worried yeah. at this stage. You know, but yeah, for a while it was just Marmion and and uh, Conor Murray. You know, he's really pushed into that space behind him. You know, yeah. could you see a point where uh, McGrath does sort of overthrow uh, Marmion in the pecking order? Which, given the fate that Schmidt has in Marmion, like I mean, he'd put him on the wing if we're down numbers, for example. And I know Marmion has done like special tra training programs in order to sort of become more of a, an international player. But is McGrath's sort of uh, career trajectory on course to maybe see him take that number two slot? Obviously, yeah. you mentioned McGrath getting 80 minutes in Australia. Marmion is probably due 80 minutes as well, to be fair. He's yeah. put, in, put in his dues. Coming into Six Nations, I think McGrath probably was there. He's probably I think he had was pushed into it, number yeah. two. And was, obviously, yeah. it's, a, it's a tight battle, and they both have strengths. Marmion has a bit, a bit more experience. But I think the three of them will be on the plane anyway, going to, to uh, Australia. It'll be interesting when they get there, what that breaks code. Yeah. He'll hope to have a medal in his pocket by then. For sure. Well, uh, we'll get the lads' predictions for the game uh, in a couple of minutes' time, but it's time now for you guys. If you have any questions for Eddie and Murray, there is a roving mic at the back there. So just throw up your hand. Don't be shy. Connor Dever, you definitely have a question. I know you do. Now, anybody, uh, anybody at all, work away. It's a gentleman here. So just a reminder as well that uh, the best question, Eddie's going to decide. Uh, and the best question will win the uh, Leinster jersey. Is it still behind us? It is, yeah, behind us there. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is it actually switched on? Oh, give us two secs there. Switch on. There he is. 
Yeah. Uh, just wondering, uh, so with Racing's like, strengths and threats across the park, with their threats out wide and their rook game and their line-out, would you expect Leinster to play quite a conservative game and uh, rely on their fitness, or how would you see them approaching this game from a strategy point of view? Yeah, like, uh, based on what we've discussed about that first quarter uh, and not giving them an in, I expect we'll probably see something like Scarlet's uh, game, the game plan against Scarlet again, uh, very direct folks on that ball carrying. They did narrow up for that game, um, and I think then the more and expensive keep, stuff... And keep the ball. Yeah, if, if keep Lens possession. have the ball, if Leinster dominate possession in the first 20 minutes, it's very hard for Asker to score. So they'll probably play direct, play tight, just to get through that first 20. And um, if Racing's discipline is poor, they pick up penalties at the breakdown, they can put themselves in a good field position. So I don't mm. think they'll be thrown around very much early doors. I think only after 20 minutes before we see anything open up too much. There's still good enough decision makers there that if... But they can the do it any time they want. We know yeah. that. But maybe not to start that game and, and just hold on to the ball as much as possible and make Racing defend a lot in the first 20 minutes rather than get them a chance to attack a lot, which Munster did. Yeah. And that didn't end well. Yeah, and, and probably a bit of kicking from, from Leinster as well. They have that string to their bow as well with Sex and his accuracy. Certainly McGrath has been a little bit off at times with that, but I think they'll kick to compete and, and generally just try and pressure Racing with that kind of style of game, definitely. Cool. Anybody else? doesn't have to be about the game at the weekend, by the way, anything at all with regards to Irish rugby or rugby generally or HRN or whatever. No, let's leave that alone. Yeah, yeah, I'll answer those. <laughs> uh, my question is, so obviously we've spoken a lot about Joey Carberry going to Ulster and uh, getting starting time there, but uh, the fact of the matter is we've got two tens who are currently starting, playing week in, week out, with this most likely sub scrum house for Ireland, who have played 20-something games each and both kick over 70%. When are we going to see Jack Carty and uh, Ross Byrne get a look in internationally? I think Ross Byrne actually was quite close to making the squad uh, for the Six Nations. That's the word from, from Ireland camp anyway. Uh, I think Schmidt was kind of reluctant to, to take three outhouse, which would obviously left Leinster in a bit of a pickle, even with all their depth. Um, so he wanted to leave him there and, and get a bit more experience. I think, I think he will come into the mix a bit more, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure that Schmidt is fully convinced that his ceiling is as high as some of those other guys. Uh, Jack Cardi probably struggles for consistency still, I think. Uh, to, to convince the, the national team coaches. I mean, his instinctive skills, his creativity are, are really exceptional. He scored some great tries, but there's been other games where he's missed touch a few times. Little errors like that that can really sap momentum out of a team. So I think he's still a little bit off, uh, even with the potential and, and attacking quality he has. I think there'll be a good indication when he picks the tour squad. Uh, what out halves he brings? He'll bring Sexton and bring Carberry. Is there a third out half in the squad? Who would that be? Yeah. You know, I don't think I don't think it'll be uh, Ian Keatley, to be honest. I think, uh, you know, on his form, middle of the season maybe, but I think his form has dipped. So I think he's probably going to maybe look at a third option. Uh, yeah. that and Burn is earned. Yeah, Burn could be the guy that'd go. Um, I think out of the two of them, probably Burn will get the nod because of what you said about his consistency, you know. And he yeah. has played for Leinster a lot at 10 this year. The interesting one is what would have happened if Tyler Blaindahl was, was fit. Because he was in an Ireland camp. Uh, last January or December yeah. and is now qualified on residency he obviously hasn't shown that he can be that world class out half that, that Munster hope he but will the clock be. is ticking for the World Cup yeah. you know, it's yeah. I think he needs to play soon but um, and not just for Munster he needs to play at the next level up to find out Yeah, it is a worry Like th I think that's why the RFU are, are really continuing to encourage Joey Carberry to move because 
if he doesn't go and get those games, then you get to another situation like 2015, which Ireland have said is never going to happen again, where a key player goes down and there's a, a major worry about the guy coming in uh, or a, a big gap in terms of experience. So it's definitely an issue that, that needs to be resolved. At the same time, though, even if Carberry moves, like you're going to have to, he's going to have to start presumably 10, like maybe two tests in the summer and, and give him a couple of runs out in November again. Like, because if Ireland are challenging for Six Nations and trying to beat Southern Hemisphere teams, he's not going to be starting over Johnny Sexton anyway. So how do you give the guy proper elite-level international experience without playing him? Yeah, yeah we've mentioned here before that hopefully the third test in Australia, if they can get a job done in the first two, is a chance. Or even the second test, if they can get a win in the first. Um, you have to take that, that chance at some stage. And Joe has spoken about this tour being the chance to experiment or, or try different things. Six Nations time obviously is, is your strongest team, strongest foot forward all the time uh, and go for that Grand Slam and it paid off. So this tour is, is the one. I don't think anyone will hold it against Ireland or Joe Schmidt if, if they gain that kind of um, experience out of it while not winning 3-0. So for me, it has to be the opportunity for a scrum half start and an out half start for someone who's not Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton. Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Here we go now. Uh, so my question isn't necessarily for you, Gavin. It's mainly for... Uh, <laughs> uh, so there's a job vacancy open in the west of Ireland, obviously, and uh, one of the two of you might obviously be involved in the conversation. I'm not going to say which one of you it is at the moment, but uh, if it's not going to be one friends. of you, who would you like to see in the role and what do they have to do to get back to kind of the level that they're playing with under Pat Lamb? What do Connor have to do? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard to know because I think... The year that they won with Pat Lamb was a kind of a special year. It was about a Leicester City year. Um, they certainly achieved more as a group than the sum of the parts, which is just, it was a, and a lot of things went well from. I think the problem with that, was, and it was great that they won, but the, the problem with that is expectation around that is very, very high. So maybe patience as well around it not getting near that is, is very thin. Um, but I still think Connacht are punching below their weight this year, like they are last season. They didn't play as well as they could have. Um, I suppose it's an indicator that they've left their coach go after a year that there was something askew and that they feel themselves. But I, I think, like, Connacht to win another Pro 14 uh, would be a big, tall order. Uh, but having said that, they should be, like, further up than they are. But to do that, they need to probably go back to where they were. They need to find a way of playing that they all buy into. Um, like Pat Lamb decided to play one way and he stayed at it and he stayed at it and uh, it's quite an interesting attack that was a three channel attack you know forwards out wide and bottom in the middle and he stuck with it the whole way through and, and they won the Pro 14 um, they don't seem to have that sort of vision at the moment how they're playing they need to go back to something like that and play to a, a kind of a structure that suits them but remember look Pat Lamb's first year in charge was actually was slightly worse than Kieran Keane's and they stuck with them, and it took another two years for it to come to fruition. So I think they've got to go back to basics, find out what suits them well, how they should play, and then kind of go for it and stick with it and build confidence around that. And that's the way back from. Is it something that you would be interested in? Is it? Um, I've got a thermometer again. So <laughs> check the temperature because hell might freeze over. Hell might freeze Before I'd be offered that job. <laughs> yeah, yeah I d I, but I think someone like you. I'm, I, I'm open to job offers. So I don't yeah. <laughs> it's just I don't think there's one going to come from those precincts. Yeah, which, Give would, a call. which would be a shame if that was the case because I think they do need to get back to that identity of, Con of Connacht rugby. I think they've wavered away from I think the culture that they had built up 
has massively declined in the last year. Certainly the talk out of the camp is that Kieran Keane was, was very unpopular with the players, that there was no relationship there. And all that work that they'd done to build up the, the kind of grassroots yeah, screenshot right, thing to is, be is fair to Keane, there was I still go back to the fact that there's two, there's two parts of it. I'm not disputing that things didn't go well for him. However, we have defined that. And, and it must have been, let's say, it must, must have been pretty bad to, to, to pull the pin after the season. Normally, if you, your first season as a coach, if things don't go particularly well, um, you usually sit down and you talk it through and find out, you know, what are we going to do here to fix it? And you get a chance to fix it. And then maybe if the second season is bad, or even after the second season, if it's still going in the wrong direction, that's when the, the bomb drops. But just to make that decision straight after the end of the season was, was bizarre in many ways, but it mo gives you an indicator that things were not happy where they were. But, um, and for that reason, so, but he was dealing then with this la high level of expectation as well. Mm. So like, there's two sides to that, but certainly th there must have been a lot of unhappiness to make the decision they did yeah. at such an early stage in, in the contract. Um, and they do need somebody to get them back to their identity. You know, to, a, lot of, a lot about that is, is getting, you know, you've, 35 fellas in your squad, getting them all on the same page, buying into the same thing, and going out and playing for each other every week. It's the same whether it's a club team or a professional team. Now, it's a lot more complicated with a professional team because they're playing at a higher level. But that's really what underpins it. The culture has to be right. And maybe the, the culture and the club slipped away, you know. And um, plus the fact that, you know, which will be more difficult for whoever takes the job is they've lost probably their key leader in John Muldoon, mm. who's been a stalwart right through the whole journey. Like, even when things were going really bad for Connacht, at one stage there, you know, a few years ago, they, they were just things were going wrong week after week after week, and he stuck in there, and he stayed right through the whole thing, you know. So, like, how to replace him? Uh, in, or, and you don't replace him, but if anybody or even a group of players can replace that sort of leadership gravitas you need as part of building the culture. Yeah. I'm sure they can find it, but it's, it's a job of work to do that. Yeah, I know? think there's a lot of work. Like, obviously, the next coaching appointment is going to be key, but, like, off the pitch, I think they've really stalled as well. Um, like when you go down to Munster's High Performance Centre, when you go into Leinster in UCD or, or, or up to Ravenhill, the, the facilities are incredible, really high performance uh, technology, whatever, the SNC is brilliant. You go down to Connacht and unfortunately it's still like a muddy pitch out the back and Bundyaki came back from the Grand Slam and he was joking about it with the press, but I think there was a serious point underneath that. You know, it's actually a poor surface to train on. They really need to get a 4G in there um, and they've all the talk about the stadium has really gone quiet. That was a big thing after the Pro 12 success. We're going to build our own stadium. Um, and going to the sports ground, while it is a lovely venue and there's loads of history there, it's, it's not quite as good a stadium as a, as a team with big ambitions like them well, should have. So. You just remember as well is that, like, look at this way, Leinster do not train where they play. You know, by and large, they, they train a different venue, and, and teams do that now. They have their training facilities mm. in one place. Everybody goes to work Monday to Friday, and then in the games are harder. You go to the stadium and play and that's the way the modern game is developing. So, you know, maybe Connor needs to look at getting away from the sports ground, build a purpose-built training centre outside the city, and then even if they go to the sports ground to play the game, so be it. It's not the end of the world um, if, if they go to the sports ground. It's still a pretty functional place. But maybe they need to move their training facility somewhere else, not, sorry, the, not in the sports ground, but somewhere completely different, have everything in one place. Like, it's you go to work there. It's like, you know, it's like your, your, your job is where the factory is. It's where you go every day. And then you go to perform, and maybe they need to look at that because there are a lot of complications in the sports court as well. It's not owned by the by the RFU. Uh, there's, you know, the the the, um, the Greyhound uh, track is functional yeah. there. It works. It's a very complicated place to manage, and um, so that, like they they have certain issues there. They're structural, but every province has been through that. It's only a few years ago Munster got that house in order. Mm. Uh, it's only a few years ago 
uh, Ulster got their house in order. It's only for years old Leinster. So maybe Connacht are a little bit behind on the on the in curve on that. But you're de- dead for your right. That's an area they have to look at as well. Very good. Anybody else? Somebody down the back there. Cheers. Um, so my question is, you guys are really good at, for me anyway, helping me identify interesting things to think about and look at in matches as a fan. And rugby is a really complicated game in many ways with mentality, physicality and laws and all that stuff that you guys talk about so well. If you were to be sitting in a pub and you've got a friend who's maybe a football fan or a really big fan of another sport, what would be the things that you'd say to them before a match to look at in rugby to try and give them the you know that love of rugby as opposed to football or basketball or cricket mistake <laughs> 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 big way for cricket no, no. yeah big yeah. way for cricket i would say there's probably two or three or four areas of the game that you could look at one would be like um identify uh, help, help them by asking them to identify where space is on the field and, and assess our teams being smart about getting into that space or if a team are not prepared to run at space they're prepared to go physical uh, you know why is that is they, are they ignoring the space or are they just there isn't space and they have to change so the physical side of the game or you know physicality is against space the other thing is what a lot of people don't look at closely is is the rock if you take any rock or what we call it tackle rock transition um, so the ball carrier goes in, he's tackled, goes to ground, and if he doesn't go to ground, it's not a tackle. So he goes to ground, then you have a tackler, and the tackler is off their feet, they've got to roll away, not interfere with the ball, and then the people coming in from both sides, the defenders contest the ball, and the attackers try and make that ball available, and the roles they play, like the first guy to the breakdown is absolutely crucial, because basically there's two things can happen. There can be person, an opposition player over the ball, uh, watch how they get that player away from the ball, you know, because that's there's a lot of that goes on and that that goes over people's heads. But watch that first support player getting to the ball and watch how efficient that player is at getting the threat away from the football. And there's different ways of doing it. There's different ways of rolling them out or rucking them off it. And then the other one is that the second player, their role is to win the space then just in front of the ball. So that that's not rocket science, but it's actually very interesting because. There's hundreds of rocks every game, and that goes on and goes on and goes on. And some people watch the game, and they don't actually watch what's going on in the rock. For me, mm. yeah. the contest for the ball is fantastic in rugby. Every rock is a chance to lose the ball if the opposition is smart, mm. and you have to be smart enough to win it. And even the way the player falls with the ball, do they present it back to make it easier? Are they in a bad place? You have to work even harder. Mm. So that whole dynamic around the tackle, there's so many tackles, there's so many rocks. Like I, I could watch just a game of rocks, you know, because <laughs> it's a battle every time. Yeah, well, three, three or four coming people. soon to HBO. It is an interesting exercise, though. Even if you watch the Leinster Scarlets game purely on the rook mm. and how Leinster, we did a piece on how they dealt with Tyburn. Like each one of those instances, there's so much in it. And even the guy on the ground who's been tackled, like Joe Schmidt's a massive proponent of that body ball. He calls yeah. it. Other guys call it fight on ground. Like that, even more so sometimes than the player arriving. If that guy on the ground is lazy, uh, they haven't got a hope of retaining yeah. the ball. If that person gets gets that separation from the point of contact it's much easier to win that space. If mm. that person gets locked up in the point of contact, you have to work harder to find that space in front of the ball. And that happens, like people see hundreds of rocks, and they know it's a rock, but they don't have any idea what's going on there. But if you look closely, it's actually very simple to follow. The first, yeah. defen- the first support player, the second support player, usually decide if the rock is won or not. And then the defenders, you see them, they know it's on to go for it, they go for it, and if they know it's lost, they back out and they get back into the defensive line. And, and you see how teams defensively, 
when they, they put too many defenders into the rock and they're never going to win it, they find they're short of defenders and the ball has moved away. Mm. And you see teams like that, they call them logs, guys lying, lying on the ground, just lying around on the ground, doing nothing, you know. Yeah. Um, and defensively then, you know, just watch the spacing of players because most of the problems here, if you show teams getting exposed, that, that their spacing around the breakdown is too tight and they find they have trouble out wide or if it's too wide, teams start to go through them. So the other things to watch for, watch the yeah. defensive spacing, the battle for possession at the ruck, and generally teams either using like a battering ram to get over the gain line or attacking space to get over the gain line. Yeah, and those are the things like, it's very basic, but Leinster will be talking about a lot of that stuff. The only other w thing I would add is probably like off the ball work. Uh, when I was playing rugby, I'd certainly just focus on exactly what I was doing. I didn't think about what was going on around me, but like since I've stopped playing and, and watching the game more, I think that's the part I've enjoyed more is is picking up which guy actually off the ball helps the, the guy who made the line break or helped who scored the try. Sometimes it can be a guy hitting a ruck, clearing a, a jackal off. Other guys, it can be someone uh, with, a, with a decoy line or even a bit of animation where they're kind of calling for the ball out wide. Little things like that that are hard to pick up live. In fairness, you need to be watching games back a bit. But um, teammates appreciate all that stuff massively. But yeah. yeah, we could go into the ruck for about 40 minutes and then talk <laughs> about that. So we'll uh, do it in a new show. I mean, like the questions are for these guys, but I don't mind volunteering an answer to that as well. I think you need more Murray Councillors and Eddie O'Sullivan to actually break the game down. That's the honest to God truth. Uh, anybody else? Say that again. Hello. Oh yeah, last one, no problem. Um, so Wayne Barnes is the, uh, the ref at the weekend, he's an interesting character and makes some interesting decisions. Um, do you think uh, do you think the team that win it, win it will be the team that manages him the best? Mm. Yeah, uh, well, I think my experience with, with Wayne Barnes is it's a, the interesting thing about Wayne Barnes is if you understand the guy, which is always good to understand the referee, the person you're dealing with. Um, he's he's a barrister by trade. So he, he's, in, he's invested in the law, he understands the law, he knows the law, he knows everything about the law. Um, there's two kind of problems that can emerge with him. One is he struggles when a game becomes very frantic. I mean, if it's a really run and gun game and there's ball flying everywhere and play a lot and there's a little bit going on off the ball as well, like late tackles or people get taken out of rucks and it gets frantic, he, he struggles with that. And often he'll blow the whistle just to stop the game so he can figure out what's going on. Um, he, 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 he just gets very uncomfortable, just gets very uncomfortable um, with, with a game that's frantic and, and a bit crazy. And that can happen, you know, and it's tough. Like, refereeing rugby is very difficult. There's so many things going on. But he does understand the law. Um, so when a game is pretty going pretty well and people are behaving themselves, he's usually right on his game. The one other thing as well is because of the law and he understands the law and he's a barrister, he at times referees the letter rather than the spirit of the law. Yeah. And he can make calls sometimes and you say, yeah, he's right, but, you know, he, it was pretty harsh, you know, mm. and he can fall that harsh side of the line. So, but having said that, he rarely makes mistakes. He doesn't get things wrong. He doesn't make calls that are crazy calls that go, that, that's a forward pass. It's and he's like, it's not a forward pass. Like we've seen so many forward passes like going on in the last while. It's ridiculous. Mm. But he's very good like that. He understands the law, calls it as he is. So I think if the game is frantic, he might struggle. But if it's, it could be very competitive at opening frantic. And uh, hopefully he, he'll probably look at the spirit of the law more than the, the letter of the law. But that's probably what you're dealing with. So now you know that. Now once you know that, do not take risks at the rock. Do not go a little bit in the side. 
Because a little bit in the side to Wayne Barnes is in the side. In the side, yeah. So he's going to penalise you for a little bit in the side, you know. And he's not going to say, that was a little bit in the side, don't do it again. He's going to get the penalty. <laughs> and you're going, shit. So, you know, that's where other referees will go, listen, you're in the side a little bit there. And watch the next time. Different way of managing the game. He doesn't do that. Like, you break the law, it's a penalty. And, and you, you look at the video, you go, yeah, it's a penalty, but it's a harsh one. But So don't do that. Like, play the letter of the law with him. You know, and you'll, you'll find he won't, you know, he won't make mistakes there. And um, don't get him flustered. Like, don't, don't get him flustered <laughs> yeah. around rocks and things. Going in, like, pushing people and stuff, because he might just pull out a yellow card and send you packing because you started something. So once you know that, then you can manage him like that. And other than that, he, he's a very good referee if... if that's the way the game plays out. What do you think of his recent trend of calling the players by their first names when he knows their first name? I don't like that. Yeah. Because I think the problem with that is you have to know every player's name. Yeah. 30 names. Scotland 14. The, plus the subs. So now you've got to remember basically 46 names, you know, and um, then it's, if you don't know a guy, it's false yeah. calling a fellow by his first name. But you do know the other guy, and it's not false. So players go, like, he knows him, he doesn't know me. But why is he talking to him about his first <laughs> But also by referring to, if you refer to three players in a row by the first name, and then you call the next guy, two, get out of there. It's yeah. disrespectful yeah. to two. But that's my point. You have to yeah. know all the names, but then they know you don't know them. You've just gone to trouble learning the names just to sound yeah. cool. So <laughs> well, to be fair, you know, I remember the... I, I just think I you, don't, you don't have to use names at all. Like, no. I just don't... Just, but it kind of... Sounds hip, and I know the guys, and their buddies. Well, he did. He, in, the grand, not, in the Grand Slam game in 2009, I think it was O'Driscoll's try, where he goes upstairs, and it was Roman Poit was the TMO, and Wayne Barnes is like, he, you know, Poit comes on, and he's like, Romain, it's Bonzi, and I'm just thinking, who else is it going to be? You, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need, you don't need to announce yourself, not yeah. least by calling you yourself Barnsey. You know what I mean? I mean, if, if it was anybody else, I think Roman would be pretty confused. You know? Also calling him Romain, you know, he didn't even bother learning Roman's <laughs> name, you know. But there you go. Uh, yeah, so that's um, that is uh, the questions, lads. Uh, we'll get the uh, winner of the jersey in a second, but very quickly to finish off. Leinster win for both of you this weekend? I think Leinster win by eight points. Oh, that's a that's a cushion. A decent cushion. Eddie, are you as um, optimistic? Yeah, I'm thinking ten actually. Oh Jesus. Yeah. I think that when he said that misconversion, I think they'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, yeah, look look at it this way. If Leinster were to lose on the weekend, it'd be hugely disappointing. Mm. And the best that yeah. everyone believes. And and I saw an exercise which is a, someone did today, and I often do it myself, is you sit down, you pick the best 15 players from the starting 30, and you see how it breaks. And I, I, I looked at it today, and I wouldn't disagree with it, but there was 10 Leinster and 5 Racing players, so I think Leinster have the edge for sure. So if they don't, very disappointing, but I believe they won't leave it behind them. That sounds good to me. Uh, we'll go through the questions. It was, uh, oh yeah, so do Leinster go with a conservative game plan? Uh, when do Jack Cardi slash Ross Byrne get a chance in Irish Green? Connacht, uh, how do they return to the level they were under uh, They were under Pat Lamb? Uh, this is terrible handwriting. Would you say, oh yeah, how would you convert a sort of a football fan or a, a fan of another sport into becoming a rugby fan? And finally, our friend Barnsley. Uh, is there any question there that tickles your fancy? Does anybody get the jersey? We can hang on to it till next time if you want. Uh, I think the question about explaining the game to a non-rugby person. Nice one. Yeah, there was a gentleman down the back there somewhere. Probably God. We will sort you out in a couple of minutes. Folks, that's all we've got time for. Thanks a million for joining us. Hope you enjoyed and enjoy the game over the weekend. Uh, we'll all be rooting for Leinster, no doubt about it. Uh, even me uh, and you. <laughs> it should be a good one. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, until next time, have a good one and uh, take care. Cheers. Cheers.